In this episode, we look at how people change. Get excited because this is Tiny Leaps. Big change. episode of Tiny Leaps. Big changes where I share simple strategies you can use to get more out of your life. My name is Greg Clunas and this is another two-part episode. This time we're covering how people change. In this two-parter, we're going to be looking at the process of changing who you are, the role classical conditioning plays in that process, the role operant conditioning plays, and how to use all of that to your advantage. Again, this is a two-part series based on an article I recently published over on tlbc.co. If you want to read the full article, you can find it right now at the link in the description of this episode. And if you like this episode, be sure to come back tomorrow for part two. Ready? Let's get into it. Have you ever stopped and wondered what it would take to successfully change those negative habits you've always held on to? It might seem like it's impossible and that you're doomed to the same old story for your whole life, but you don't have to be. People do this kind of thing all the time, and the truth is that creating change in your life is fairly straightforward. Ultimately, it comes down to a repeatable process focused on changing your behavior, and like any other process, it's something you can learn to get better at. For those that take the time to learn it and develop their skills, changing their habits and developing a new behavior becomes incredibly easy. But to create those desired changes, you do have to work at it. You have to focus on learning all of the steps it involves, and you have to practice the skills required to change habits and produce desired behaviors. That's why we're going to dive deep into this process so you can learn it step by step. We'll explore how people change their habits and behavior, what classical conditioning versus operant conditioning is, how they work, and how to use them to your advantage. We'll then look at the differences and similarities between classical and operant conditioning and how you can use both together as part of your behavior change stack. And finally, we'll create your step-by-step process for reinforcing desired behavior, developing positive habits, and hacking your psychology to benefit you. So how do people change? When you dive into it, The fundamental requirements for how people change lies in changing their beliefs, changing their behavior, or changing their environment. As we age, the beliefs we have about ourselves and the world around us play a large role in who we become as an individual. For example, if you grow up believing that people around you are inherently bad and that you should be afraid, you're more likely to be guarded as you get older. This, in turn, makes it difficult to form deep connections with the people around you. There are several beliefs that one might hold on to as they age, things picked up as a child that just sticks with you. But given the role they play in who we become, our beliefs become a critical area to affect change when trying to improve ourselves as individuals. Similarly, an individual's environment plays a large role in their change. 
Your environment is composed of five main elements, your social circle, the places you go to and visit, the people you interact with daily, the things that influence you through media like TV or movies, and lastly, your home. This environment plays a massive role in who you are during your day-to-day life. If your social circle, for example, is primarily composed of people who eat healthily, you will be more likely to also eat healthily. If you are driving past fast food restaurants every day on your way home from work, you increase your likelihood of stopping one day for lunch or dinner. In this way, your environment can play a role in creating who you are or who you become. And then the final piece worth looking at, and the one we're going to explore in depth, is changing your behavior. Your day-to-day behavior plays a huge role in who you are. It affects how you feel, what your lifestyle is like, and it impacts other areas of your life as well. Your actions also affect the options you have in your life and the opportunities you can take advantage of. For example, if you regularly skip breakfast, your energy levels will be lower and you'll have trouble focusing on the tasks at hand. This can then lead to overeating or eating on healthy foods because they're what is available when you get hungry. In this way, skipping breakfast can lead to a bad habit of eating poorly. Eating poorly can then lead to weight gain, which can lead to health problems such as diabetes and high blood pressure. One simple habit of skipping breakfast can lead to enormous issues that then affect the rest of your life and are challenging to come back from. And similarly, you need to consider how other people's actions affect you. This idea shows up when looking at the effects of your environment as well, but you could be getting influenced by negative behavior patterns without even realizing it. For example, if one of your friends always complains about being tired and run down, then chances are you'll start feeling this way too, even if there's no real reason to. That feeling can then lead to other behaviors, and before you know it, you're living a life that you never really planned. But it doesn't have to be that way, because as I said at the beginning, changing your behavior can be a fairly straightforward process. To make it happen, we have to first start by understanding two important aspects of psychology, classical conditioning, which we'll go over in this episode, and operant conditioning, which we'll cover in tomorrow's episode. So what is classical conditioning? Classical conditioning is a principle of psychology that has to do with how we react to certain stimuli. To explain how it works, we need to define some key terms. There is the unconditioned stimulus, which is something that naturally triggers a reflex or an emotion. Spicy food, for example, will make you feel the hot sensation and your mouth may water. This is a natural response that most people have to spicy foods without being taught or conditioned to respond that way. Then you have a neutral stimulus. A neutral stimulus is something that does not naturally trigger a reflex or an emotion. Seeing a glass of water, if you're not thirsty, for example, doesn't normally trigger any particular response or associations on its own. It's a perfectly bland or neutral stimulus. Then you have your conditioned stimulus. A conditioned stimulus is something that would not have been a reflex or triggered an emotion on its own, but has become associated with something else. Conditioned stimuli are typically created from taking neutral stimuli, so that glass of water, and pairing them with the unconditioned stimulus, so that spicy food. Then you have the unconditioned response. An unconditioned response is something that is an instinctual and reflexive response to something else. 
The most common example of this would be a reaction to the sight or smell of food, which triggers hunger. This is the response that typically happens to an unconditioned stimulus. And finally, we have the conditioned response. A conditioned response is the response created after pairing an unconditioned stimulus, unconditioned response, and a neutral stimulus. Now, don't worry, we're going to go into how all of this works. It's a little bit confusing, uh, but just stick with me. So let's explore this a little bit further. The classical conditioning process works by pairing a neutral stimulus, so that's one that does not have an inherent reaction, with an unconditioned stimulus, so that's something where you naturally have a response to it, to create a conditioned response. So this is the new response to the neutral stimulus based purely on the unconditioned stimulus that you paired it with. So the classic example of this can be seen in Pavlov's famous experiment. Ivan Pavlov was a Russian scientist who experimented to find out how classical conditioning works. During an experiment with dogs, Pavlov noticed that every time he gave his dog food, the dog would salivate in response. This was the unconditioned stimulus. One day, he saw his dog start to salivate when they heard the footsteps of his workers coming with food, and he recognized that he stumbled onto a massive discovery. The dogs were having the same response before they could even see the food. They were salivating, but without the food being present. So they were having that natural response, but it was in response to something that wasn't the food. It was the footsteps. Pavlov wanted to explore this discovery further, so he started ringing a bell before giving the food to the dogs and found that eventually the sound of the bell alone would cause them to salivate. This was the conditioned response. By using the natural relationship between food and dogs salivating, he was able to use a different neutral stimulus, which is the sound of that bell, to produce the same response. So what does this mean for behavior change? Well, classical conditioning holds an enormous amount of value when used as a tool to change behavior. By better understanding the relationship between your stimuli, both conditioned and natural, and their responses, again, both conditioned and natural, you can start to gain real insight into what situations to avoid if your goal is to change certain behaviors. Let's say, for example, that you want to kick a sugar craving. You'd first want to look at the unconditioned stimulus and the unconditioned response. If you remember from the earlier definitions, this is the natural stimulus response pairing. For example, let's pretend that your vice is chocolate cake. It's natural for you to smell a chocolate cake and to respond with a craving for it. Great. So we've got an idea of what our regular response looks like. Now we need to add a neutral stimulus to the mix. The goal of this stimulus is to take something that doesn't currently have any association with that craving response and create that association by piggybacking on the existing stimulus. To do this, we'll need to place the neutral stimulus before the unconditioned or natural stimulus that we're working with. So according to classical conditioning, if we have a natural hunger response to the smell of chocolate cake, we may be able to create the same hunger response to the sight of a salad if we regularly see a salad before smelling the cake and having the response. The truth is, this can work, but it definitely is not going to be that easy. 
Getting yourself to crave salads is probably not going to be as straightforward as putting a salad in front of you when you know you're going to smell chocolate cake. That would be ridiculous. Not to mention, how would you know for a fact that you're about to smell chocolate cake? That it just wouldn't work. But even though this particular use case may be a bit far-fetched, you've already had your behavior changed based purely on classical conditioning by any number of brands. A perfect example of this is the mouth-watering effect that people experience when they see a giant yellow M logo. Have you ever stopped wondering why that happens? How did a random burger chain create such a deep association between their logo, their color, and the feeling of being hungry? The answer is by using salt and the classical conditioning process. Here's how it worked. Humans have a natural or unconditioned response to salt in our food. We almost universally perceive foods that are higher in salt as more delicious than foods without. This natural response can lead to craving foods that we know are saltier. Now, it just so happens that McDonald's and every fast food company and pretty much any restaurant needed to make their food saltier to make them taste better. So here we have an unconditioned stimulus in the form of salty food and an unconditioned response in the form of feeling hungry or your mouth watering. Now, as we just learned, to turn that unconditioned response into a conditioned response, you need a neutral stimulus. That neutral stimulus also needs to occur right before the unconditioned stimulus for the association to be made. And finally, the process has to be repeated several times. So now let me ask you this. What do you typically see right before you smell or taste the food from McDonald's or before biting into something that you've ordered? It's that big yellow M. This M is the neutral stimulus. And with that, all of the conditions are met to create an association between the McDonald's logo and the feeling of being hungry. So the question of whether or not classical conditioning works for influencing behavior is honestly kind of a silly one. Multiple billion dollar companies have used it to create new behaviors or change behaviors in their customers. The real question needs to be, how do we use classical conditioning on ourselves? In this vein, I think it's more powerful when used as a tool for gathering insight. Given its emphasis on stimuli and response, classical conditioning can give you valuable knowledge about what stimuli are tied to what responses and what you should be trying to avoid during your behavior change process. So going back to our McDonald's example, if you know that you tend to crave McDonald's when you see their logo, thanks to classical conditioning, and you happen to drive past one on your way home from work each day, then consider choosing to change your route if that's a habit you want to break. Doing so is one decision you can make to avoid the influence and increase your likelihood of achieving any nutrition or fitness-based goals. But making that decision requires being able to critically analyze the response you've been conditioned to have. It requires knowing that there is this pairing, this conditioned response. In this way, classical conditioning becomes a valuable tool in your toolkit to change behavior and help you stay consistent with your goals by making better decisions. But that's not where the process of changing behavior ends. In tomorrow's episode, we look at the form of conditioning known as operant conditioning. And this is far more powerful when trying to build habits 
than anything else. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm super excited about this two-parter. I spent a long time writing this, putting it together. I do want to give a little uh, disclaimer. Uh, I don't know if disclaimer is the right word, but I do want to acknowledge something. I've done an episode in the past on classical and operant conditioning where I attempted to explain what they were. And operant conditioning is a little bit easier to understand, but in that original episode, I did not fully understand how classical conditioning worked. And so while the episode still had value and I think it was still important, I wasn't fully explaining the details of how it worked and I wasn't able to fully grasp in my own mind how it could be used against us or how it could be used for us. So I'm excited about this episode because after doing the research to write this very long article, it's about 3,500 words, after going through all of that, I do feel I better understand it. There are still some gaps, and if anyone out there is an expert in this field, I would love to talk to you and try to better understand it myself. I'd love for you to point out anything that I got wrong. Uh, Just reach out to me on Instagram and let me know. Uh, But I do think that this episode is a far more valuable explanation of how classical conditioning is being used against you right now and how you can use it for your own benefit. So again, if you like this series, you want to read the full thing, it's up right now. Just head to the link in the description of this episode or tune in tomorrow, not really or, and tune in tomorrow for part two, where we go into operant conditioning and how we tie all of this back to how we as people can change. Thank you so much for being here. I've been Greg Clunas. And remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every day. 